The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of the TOST Podcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts, and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the podcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I'm Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show, available on BMC Channels 9 and 29, and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. We're talking baseball on this edition of the Toddcast as the Red Sox head into the final 21 games of the regular season, sporting not only the best record in baseball by a full nine games, but are also just three wins shy, becoming only the fourth team in franchise history to win 100 games. And again, this is a franchise that goes all the way back to 1901, also trying to become uh, the uh, first 100-game winning team since 1946. And to talk about all this and whether the club will have a playoff-caliber bullpen come October, I am pleased to be joined by Red Sox beat writer Christopher Smith from MassLive.com, who you can follow on Twitter with one of my favorite all-time Twitter handles. It's at Smitty on MLB. Chris, welcome back to the Toddcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, always good to have you on. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to start... Uh, originally, Chris, uh, by talking about uh, kind of the season to date and all the history, which is insane. But then, of course, uh, the Red Sox had to go and play kind of a, a just an insane game this afternoon. Uh, here I was, uh, I'm looking at this game early, and first thing I did was I was looking at the box score because I'm trying to follow along while I'm at work. And, you know, I'm looking at what looks like essentially a, a, a spring training split squad game. Betts, Bogarts, Martinez, Nunez, Kinsler all got the day off. You had Bradley leading off, Swihart hitting second. Uh, Brandon Phillips making his Red Sox debut, and of course uh, we will uh, we'll get to that. Uh, and then so the Red Sox fall behind in this game seven to one going into the eighth inning, and apparently, according to uh, one uh, feed out here, I guess uh, no team in baseball this year, uh, when trailing by six or more runs entering the eighth inning, had won a game. In fact, uh, teams were 0 and 487 in that situation until, lo and behold, the Red Sox with their their B team out there on the field come back. They tie the game at seven. They fall behind, and then they uh, win the game in the ninth inning with uh, Brandon Phillips making some history in, in, in several different ways. I guess uh, you can confirm this for me, Chris. Is he the first Red Sox player to wear number zero? I believe so. Actually, I, I wish I, I knew that correctly. Um, I think he is. I, I'm pretty sure he is. I mean, I thought I heard a reference last night when they were uh, showing him in the dugout. I was watching a little bit of the broadcast last night, and I thought I heard Dave O'Brien make a reference to that, and I couldn't recall anyone. And in fact, you know, I think they brought up Al Oliver's name from like 20, almost 30 years ago, and I think that might have been the last player I could recall even who wore number zero at all in Major League Baseball. And so so Phillips makes his debut. He's the first Red Sox player to wear number zero. He's also, I guess, the first player uh, making his debut to hit a, uh, a go-ahead or game-winning home run uh, in the uh, ninth inning. 
which he did today with two outs. And of course, you tracked the uh, the velocity, the uh, you know the outgoing velocity of the uh, the home run, 108 and a half miles an hour and 432 feet. And so after the Sox had uh, tied the game, then fell behind 8-7, Phillips hits this two-run homer, and they win the game 9-8, one of the more improbable uh, victories of the season. Yeah, it seemed like Alex Gore was, you know, I mean, he, he seemed as excited as could be after this game, as, as, as at any time this year. So that's <laughs> that's pretty remarkable considering, you know, they're 97-44, you know, that. that this team has kind of made him speechless. You know, this game would make him speechless. You know, so it had to have been a really special game for him, you know, considering the fact that he didn't play the best players today. And, you know, I don't blame him, you know. I mean, he, the whole thing this whole year has been rest players, and, you know, that essentially gives your best players three days off, you know, because they're not playing today. They're, they haven't played since. Uh, you know, they're, they're not going to play tomorrow, and they're not going to play till Friday. So, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're up, you know, heading into that one. They have 22 games remaining. They're up eight and a half in the standing. You know, you don't need to. So, uh, you know, to get that win, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, you'd kind of... And the way that they do it, too, with, with Brandon Phillips, you know, and we were unclear if he was even going to come up, and I think a lot of it was you know, him wanting to come up and, and just do whatever role they asked him to. Uh, he just wanted to be a part of his team. So uh, that made it even kind of more incredible. Well, yeah, you're right, Chris. I mean, yeah, I've been uh, reading some of your tweets uh, through during the game, and you kept mentioning how, the you know, Cora was playing this game you know, basically, you know, you could look at that starting lineup, and like I said, it reminded me of a split-squad game in, in Fort Myers in March which was around the last time we had you on, kind of oddly enough. Uh, but you would, you know, you said uh, the Red Sox were punting the game away, which kind of, it, it felt like it. Sure, hey, why not? I mean, they'd won 96 games. I mean, they have a huge lead. They're, they're nine games up on every team in baseball, uh, you know, for the best record, you know, with only, you know, three weeks left of the regular season. So, you know, why not? You can understand it's the, it's the last game of a road trip. It's a day game after a night game, kind of a getaway day. Early start down in Atlanta, 12 noon. I don't know what what's up with that, but... Uh, you know, so all those things, and then like you tied in uh, with uh, with Brandon Phillips, um, and you know and what the, what a story he's been. I mean, they they signed him earlier this year. Uh, refresh my memory a little bit here, Chris. They they signed him what it was sometime in the spring, and he's been down in Pawtucket most of the season. Yeah, they signed him during the season, so that probably back in uh, I want to say June. Yeah, they sent him like halfway through the year. It's kind of surprising considering that he had a uh, you know pretty good year last year. He had over 30, 40 extra base hits. Uh, so it was kind of surprising that you know no one signed him up until that point. They signed him. I think it was in either late May or in June, and um, you know he's just been in Pawtucket, and uh, you know it was kind of like his you know at first for him. It was kind of his spring training. Really didn't produce very good stats for the first you know. 15 games or so, but he got red hot after that. He's, he's one of their best players. He actually may have been like, eh, I think it was June. So, yeah, he, he hasn't been in the organization that long. It's not like he's been there with the team the whole year. And it, in terms of punting the game, I mean, that was what a lot of you know fans were tweeting to me, that phrase, why are they punting this game? And, you know, I think that if you've seen Cora the whole year, I mean, he's, he's consistently giving guys days off. And, you know, I think that will go well towards the end of the year, too. If, 
you know, everybody stays fresh, and, and even if, you know, even though they've clinched, say, you know, with, with nine or ten games left, they can, you know, they don't have to rest people at that point. They can just do their occasional resting thing like they've been doing and play good baseball heading into the postseason, which, you know, they haven't played good baseball heading into the postseason the past two years. The last weeks, the past two years, they haven't played good, you know, good final weeks. So, um, you know, I think that it's, it's not necessarily uh, punting on um, Cora's part. He just, uh, you know, likes the resting, and um, he's still confident he can win with that lineup. I don't know if he's 100% confident, but, you know. Uh, and, yeah, so Phillips has been, I mean, that was pretty incredible what Phillips did. Yeah. Well, I mean, you summed it up very well earlier, Chris, when you said it, it made sense for Cora to kind of field this this B-squad lineup today because, again, it's, a, it's an early afternoon start. It's a getaway day. There's a day off tomorrow. They don't play again until uh, Friday night at Fenway uh, kicking off a nine-game homestand. So, yeah, I mean, everything sort of and, – and also it's September now, so you've got all these extra players on the roster anyway, so you have the luxury, and then you add all that in with the, the best record in baseball. They're up nine games on, on the entire field. So, uh, yeah, it, it certainly, you know, it made all the sense in the world to put that lineup out there. So, you know, they're down 7-1. to one. You're kind of just – you're kind of tuning in for a minute to check it out. You're going, yeah, okay, I'm not surprised this is going on. And so they'll lose today. Yeah, big deal. You know, they'll, they'll come back home and – you know, everything will be fine again. But then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, someone told, someone forgot to tell these guys while they were just supposed to roll over. And, you know, here are the Atlanta uh, Braves that are, you know, right now leading the uh, NL East by, uh, what, uh, two and a half games currently. I mean, they're in kind of in a, in a dogfight with uh, Philadelphia for that division and trying to win it and uh, make and clinch a playoff spot of their own. And, you know, their bullpen, which, uh, you know, they went out and picked up Brad Brock at the trade deadline, someone who probably might fit in well with the Sox. But, yeah, I mean, all these things, and you figured, well, okay, what are the odds that they're going to blow a six-run lead at home uh, in the eighth inning? Again, you know, especially when I throw out that other stat that I found uh, on the Twitter uh, this afternoon. You know, teams were 0-487 this season, went down six or more runs, eighth inning or later. And, and it just all fell apart for him. That's, you know, you know, as I as I kind of replied to one of your tweets, Chris, it was, uh, you know, what is it with uh, Atlanta teams being so uh, forgiving or, or hospitable to uh, to New England teams? I mean, you know, again, all I got to do is go back to, to Super Bowl 51 down, you know, Falcons up 28-3. I mean, this is almost the baseball equivalent. Uh, I don't know if that makes, uh, you know, Ian Kinsler, uh, uh, Danny Amendola, and maybe, uh, uh, I guess, uh, Brandon Phillips would be James White then getting the, uh, the game-winning... Uh, uh, hit in the uh, in the last at bat. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was, uh, it was it was just an incredible uh, to win. And considering you know, you pointed out the Atlanta needed that win too. I mean, they're in a fight, you know. So uh, that's kind of a devastating loss for them. When you think about the Red Sox, it's just a fun win because you know they're nine games up and they're rolling, and you know. They lost that game. Oh well, it's just a game, and you know you go back home and you're still up. You know eight games or whatever. That's pretty devastating loss for Atlanta. You know when they're trying to win a division. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, you know that. You know the other team was playing. <laughs> 
yeah, right now, though, and the Phillies are getting ready, you know, for their game today, and, you know, they're probably watching. They got the uh, the Sox-Braves game on in the clubhouse or whatever. They, they're they loving every minute of that eighth inning, and then especially, uh, you know, and, and then again in the ninth when uh, Phillips got the, uh, the go-ahead and, and what proved to be the game-winning homer. I mean, again, let's just, you know, talk about this incredible season, Chris. I mean, here they are. They are 97-44 and 44 with 21 games left in the regular season. Uh, what's 53 games over 500. They, their magic number to clinch the American League East is 14. Their magic number to clinch a playoff spot is four. Uh, they are uh, they, they end up going uh, uh, 15 and three against the National League this year, or I should say 14 and three, I guess. Uh, I think they still have three games left with the Mets. I forgot about that. Uh, they uh, they've won uh, their last 12 series against the National League. They're 9 0 and three. They've won 49 of their 97 games on the road. Uh, when they've hit a home run this year, they're 76 and 18. Which and and the home run that Phillips hit in the ninth inning, I believe that was the first home run they had hit in this series, completing a three-game sweep of the Braves. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you got all you know. Right, you, you factor all of that in, and it's just uh, you know it's, it's and again all the numbers are, are insane. I mean, and when I say the Red Sox are up nine games, you know they're nine games clear of the best record in baseball. The second-best record in baseball belongs to the team that's right behind him in the division, the Yankees, uh, who are 87-52. and 52. Another interesting thing when I was crunching numbers uh, earlier today, Chris, was, um, you know, back on uh, the first day of summer, or you, you woke up on uh, the morning of June 22nd, first full day of summer, uh, you know, the Red Sox were actually two games behind the Yankees. Both the Red Sox and Yankees had each won 50 games to that point. Uh, the Yankees had lost four fewer games, so that's where the discrepancy uh, in the uh, the game standings were. But since that day, when you know the Yankees and Red Sox were tied on June twenty second, they each had fifty wins. Since that time, the Red Sox have gone forty seven and eighteen, while the Yankees, you know, and people talk about, well, you know, they've they've been a little up and down. Well, they've been kind of in a two month malaise. Uh, and granted, I know they've had injuries and whatnot, but they're thirty seven and thirty since. June 22nd, in fact, the Tampa Bay Rays actually have, I think they have like about a six-game lead on the Yankees over that same time period. Rays are 41-23 and 23 since that day. And they, again, the Yankees have, uh, you know, you know, as great a record as they have. And again, I'm, I'm just reiterating, they have the second-best record in Major League Baseball. And yet the last 67 games, they're just barely over 500. Yeah, and, you know, people can say, oh, the, the Yankees have their injuries, and they do. I mean, obviously, Aaron Judge, and, you know, Sanchez hasn't ever had a good year even when he's, you know, in the lineup. But, I mean, look, it's, first sale's been on a long time. Uh, he's missed some, you know, starts here, and, uh, you know, Red Sox haven't been completely healthy themselves. So, I mean, every team's going to have their injuries. Uh, it's about overcoming it. And, uh, you know, the Red Sox haven't pitched well in – you know, starting pitching-wise, they've not pitched well over the last, uh, you know, two weeks. They have an ERA over six, but they just keep winning. And I think that goes to show, you know, I mean, um, what they have for depth and, what you know, the, the resilience and stuff like that and how they keep winning these types of games while the Yankees might not be winning these types of games as much. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, look at those. They're... The Red Sox have had their injuries, um, you know, in the starting rotation stuff. But, you know, even Stephen Wright, that was, and Stephen Wright was pitching insanely good uh, at the time of his knee injury. I mean, you've got, you know, you look back at Pedroia, and, you know, that was 
a significant injury in the first half considering the infield defense at second base was not good with Eduardo Nunez. And Eduardo Nunez wasn't really healthy the first half of the year. He didn't even hit. So, um, you know, Cora's done a really good job of, of uh, you know, as I said, resting players, getting the most out of every player, uh, challenging players, and, um, you know, and, and he, he's, you know, there, there hasn't been many times this year where we've questioned a decision of his. There has been sometimes, but there seemed like it was on a nightly basis almost with John Farrell last year, and maybe that was because he was managing for his life too. Um, but really, he's just been calm and he's been cool, and uh, you know, he's got. I don't want to say a cockiness to him, but he's, he, you know, he's very confident in, in his ability. And uh, he came out in here like I never thought a first-year manager could do, and it's been pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been talking with uh, Red Sox fans all season, and I've been very impressed uh, with Cora's uh you know, you're right. The way he's been, you know, he's managed in his rookie season. I think it helps that he had played here, uh, so he understands the the Boston fan base. He understands playing in an intense market. He was on a World Series championship winning team in 2007 uh, with with the, with the Red Sox, and you know, he also uh, was learning under a pretty good manager at that point uh, in Terry Francona, who you know, I'm sure at that point, if Cora had thoughts of becoming a manager later, and you know, after his playing day. You know, he was, in fact, I, I think uh, during that series recently against Cleveland, I think weren't uh, Francona and Cora kind of swapping notes about how Cora used to always, like, you know, talk with, with Terry before the, you know, like a, the half hour before the games, they were, like, you know, going over different things. And, I, I mean, it felt like even at that stage of his playing career, Cora was already in that future managerial mold. Yeah, and, and with that confidence in you know, it's funny because he he'll tell you he wasn't a great player himself, but he was a he was a pretty dang good player for what he did. And, you know, it's funny, like he'll make these comments about things like, you know, throughout the year throughout the year he's made them. It shows his his confidence in himself and, and you know, his it's a, you know, he's not cocky but he's got a little bit that in him, like, you know, so remember the play earlier in the year the Tyler Austin game with, you know, Joe Kelly and all that. But Tyler Austin slid into, you know, Brock Holt. That started it all. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked, uh, you know, somebody asked Cora what he would have done in that situation if he was Brock Holt. And he said, I would have turned the double play. And, you know, and so he's like that, you know, everybody laughs because, you know, it's like his little confidence there and, you know, just his approach, and everybody laughed, and, you know, he's probably, you know, I'm sure he's like that with his players. You know, he has that confidence with them. He probably fools around with them like that, too. There was another situation in the dugout in Chicago this past weekend where, you know, I asked him, I said, um, you know, because I, you know, he knows exactly what we're all tweeting about, what we're writing about, and I've been very vocal about, you know, Swihart should be the starting catcher. And so there, there was a lot of talk about Swihart in the dugout. And uh, so I said to him, I go, uh, what's your what's your opinion on, um, you know, catcher ERA? Is it important or uh, is it overrated? 
and he looked at me and he goes, what's your opinion? Because it seems like it's changed over the course of the season. And, uh, you know, so, like, he's, he's feisty. He'll give it back to you. And uh, it's not like he takes anything personally, but, he, you know, he, he has fun with you, and he'll, he'll, he'll throw it right back at you. So, uh, yeah, I think it's gone well with his players in that respect, and I think it's almost like the way that Terry Francona used to be with his players. Yeah, and, you know, uh, again, we're talking uh, with uh, Chris Smith, uh, covers the Red Sox for MassLive.com. And, you know, Chris, you bring up, uh, you know, we, we just, you mentioned, uh, you know, Cora wasn't much of a player. You can say the same thing about Terry Francona when he played in the major leagues. I know uh, his career was cut short by uh, different uh, various assortment of injuries. But, uh, again, kind of, you know, much like Cora really wasn't, uh, I think even without the injuries, I'm not sure Francona was really going to, necessarily be a, a great major league player he was you know and you know average he made it to the show that's you know and but look at the kind of manager he turned into I mean it's uh yeah you don't have to be a great player to be a great manager in fact you know you look over the history of major league baseball how many great players uh, wind up becoming great managers yeah the, and you know when Cora was a player I mean they respected him you know the, he was respected in the clubhouse greatly I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, that he is bilingual or he is bilingual and, you know, he communicated well with everybody in the clubhouse and kind of brought everybody together. He said that him and Mike Lowell used to, you know, kind of bring, you know, both sides of the Latin players and, you know, the American players uh, together and, um, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, and so I think that that's really helped. I mean, look at, he had a, an interesting relationship with Manny Ramirez, too. I mean, he, he always talks about he was kind of the one that kept Manny under control or tried to keep him under control. And it's funny because when Manny was traded in 2008, he, you know, he called Cora. And his, he said to Cora, he goes, I, I got traded. And, and Cora was like, hey, congratulations. And and Manny goes, I, I don't want to be traded. I, I was like, well, what? You know, because he, you know, he was like, if you were in that room, you'd think that the, the first thing that Manny would want to be is created that year. You know, he was he, all, you know, his attitude pointed to that he wanted to be traded, that he forced a trade, and then all of a sudden he gets traded, and that's not what he wanted. So um, it's funny, like, you know, he built that relationship with, with Manny that Manny really liked him, and, you know, he was that kind of um, glue in the clubhouse, even though he wasn't the best player. You don't have to be the best player to be a leader and, um, you know, and, he, and to gain respect. And the same way that he gained respect, uh, you know, back in the day as a player, he's gaining, he gained respect now as a manager. Yeah, I, like you're saying here, Chris, it's just it, it's not having – it has nothing to do with your talent on the field to be an effective manager. You just have to be able to relate to the players. You bring up Cora's uh, bilingualness, and I think that is, has been a very underrated – and I've had this conversation with, with several Red Sox fans this season. Uh, that's kind of a, a definitely a fly-under-the-radar quality, a positive quality for Cora, because you do have, a, you know, several players on this current Red Sox team where English is not their best language, and the fact that Cora can talk to them in their language and, you know, be able to communicate effectively with them, it just, it makes things so much easier. All these players know where they stand on the team because Cora's just been able to communicate so effectively. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just Cora, too. I mean, there's several coaches on that staff that, 
a bilingual, you know, Carlos Fabulous, the third base coach, you know, um, you got um, Andy Varcat, the assistant hitting coach. So, you know, I'm, I'm missing other people. Ramon Vasquez, uh, who's a coach, but, you know, he's kind of the liaison between the coaching staff, the players, and the scouting department. So there's, but, he, you know, he's a coach. He, he's in uniform every day. So there's, there's several coaches on this team that, that speak both languages and, you know, communicate well. So that's that's definitely a positive. It's not, not just core. No, but it certainly helps when you have the manager. You know, in some cases, he doesn't have to necessarily go through his other coaches to to communicate to his players. He can go directly to them if he needs to, which, uh, you know, again, it's a plus. But you're right. It, it's also good to have a coaching staff as a whole, you know, a diverse coaching staff and and be able to uh, extend uh, extend the, the right uh, words and thoughts. Uh, you know, so getting to the team on the field here, I, and again, I you know, you can follow uh, Chris Smith from MassLive.com. You can follow him. His Twitter handle is at Smitty on MLB, S-M-I-T-T-Y on MLB. Uh, again, great Twitter handle there, Chris. Uh, you know, one of the things I think I saw you tweet earlier this week, uh, probably it was probably after the uh, the Tuesday night game, uh, Rick Porcello, uh, after he had uh, singled, by the way, uh, Porcello now sporting a three-game hitting streak uh, in his, uh, you know, in in games in which he's batted, uh, you know, incredible this year. In fact, I'm going to throw this stat at you because you you were at one point uh, tweeting about Porcello, but you were also tweeting about Sandy Leone. And just to kind of maybe uh, uh, bring your point home, uh, Porcello this year is three for seven with two doubles, a single, a run scored, and three runs batted in. I was actually at the uh, the game at uh, Nationals Park in D.C. when he got the the bases clearing double to drive in those runs uh again what a great moment that was the, the stadium was going nuts with all the red sox fans so so porcello for you know again limited at bats there three for seven with two doubles and a single he has an ops on the year of 1.143 and this was after i guess in his uh previous three years with the red sox in interleague play it was only one for 11 his all-time batting average okay this is porcello's all-time batting average including his years in detroit he is 8 for 39. That's a 205 average and a 462 OPS. Since the All-Star break this year, Sandy Leone is hitting 105. That would be nine hits in 86 at-bats and a 384 OPS. So since the All-Star break, Sandy Leone has had one more hit than Rick Porcello has had in his entire career uh, hitting. And I think at one point, I think you, the point you had made in one of your tweets was you think the Red Sox could have won just as easily if Porcello had hit eighth and Leon ninth. And this kind of just points to the fact that Leon, you know, there, there are pitchers who are hitting better than Sandy Leon is right now. And granted, he's a very good catcher and the pitchers seem to respond to him behind the plate. But, uh, you know, you also, you got to be able to produce and not be an automatic out. I mean, 105 since the all-star break for Sandy Leon. I think we're seeing. Uh, I think we're seeing that. You know, the next year the catching situation is probably going to be Swart and Vasquez. I just don't see how you can bring back Leon. Um, these two have the most offensive ability, and the mo- you know, defensively, I'm fine with both of them. You know, Vasquez and and um, Swart. I think I think Swart's a lot better of a defensive player than people make him out to be, and I think he should be the starting catcher in the playoffs. Uh, his arm is is legit. Um, you know, it's, I mean, he, every throw he makes, the seconds right on the money. If it's if, you know, if, if he you know if he doesn't get a runner, it's usually not because of the throw being a bad one. Um, 
So, you know, I, I look at it and I've kind of evolved with this whole catcher ERA thing. And, well, you know, I, I understand because I, you know, I pitched in obviously I only pitched in Little League and the league up from Little League, whatever, whatever that's called. I forget now, but I, I did have I did have catchers that I preferred and I felt comfortable throwing to, but. Um, you know, I feel like with, with catcher ERA, you know, a lot of people point to that with Sandy and say, oh, he has the best catcher ERA in baseball over the past two years, and he should be catching his team consistently, and even though he's an automatic out. But, you know, catchers really can't affect their own catcher ERA. And, you know, and it definitely helps that he's caught sale consistently over the past two years. <laughs> you know, anybody would have a good catcher's ERA if they were catching Chris Sale, David Price, and, and Rick Marcel pretty consistently. Um, you know, and if Blake Swihart's catching ERA isn't as good, you know, that's probably because he's, you know, he's catching Brian Johnson and, and Hector Velasquez. Now, you know, you, so you look at it that way. I mean, you know, did Swihart have a, you know, when, when, when Rick Priscilla says, well, well, he owns the best catcher I've ever caught. They, you know, and then Rick Purcell goes out and has a bad game like he did in Chicago where he gave up, you know, three runs or four runs in the first three innings. Did Leon have a bad first three innings or did Priscilla have bad first three innings? It was Priscilla. So I, I, I've always been the type that I feel like last year catchers were paired with pitchers and the comfort level it happened too much I felt like it should change this year and it's kind of fallen back where everybody has their own personal catcher and I think that Swihead would be just fine you know you were, uh, you know, Chris Sale would be a Cy Young candidate if, if Blake Swihead was catching him I don't think that would be anything different you know if they changed up the catcher and I think he, he can definitely you know, he's definitely a much better defender than a lot of people notice. I mean, the balls blocking in the dirt has been like a hundred times better than when he was a rookie in 2015 and he was the starter of Leon. So, you know, I understand that Leon works while he calls a good game and, and pitchers have comfort with him. And maybe that's important during the playoffs. I don't know. That's, that's up to Cora to decide. But I think we're looking at the long term, long term. Um, that Swihart should be the, and Swihart or Vasquez should be sharing this catcher's uh, position, and and maybe Swihart plays at first base on his, on the day that he doesn't, you know, catch and stuff like that, and Vasquez catches. And I think that was the plan that I thought all along. Well, yeah, I mean, I I believe we talked about this uh, when we, when you were on uh, the uh, here on the Toddcast before the season, Chris, uh, because I think you and I are in total agreement with Swihart. We're both big Blake Swihart fans. Uh, I know before the season we were concerned whether he was going to find a way to stay on the roster because he didn't have any options. They couldn't send him down to the minors without exposing him to waivers, and he, he probably would have been claimed, I think almost certainly would have been claimed by another team. So they had to hang on to him on the 25-man roster all year. Then, I, I don't want to say as luck would have it, but you know the injury to Vasquez here in the second half of the season has given Swihart the opportunity to play a little more. Even though he's only got a 225 average for the season, he's certainly hitting a lot better since 
since Vasquez went on the disabled list and you know, even with Vasquez now back over the last week or so. I mean, Swihart's just hitting with a whole lot of confidence again, very similarly to the way he hit in 2015 before he had a couple of the, you know, years where he was set back with the injuries, you know, moving him to different positions. But I'm with you in the respect that I think in the future, the long-term future, I think it's got to be Swihart and Vasquez. I know the Red Sox locked up Vasquez to a, you know, a long-term multi-year deal, which, you know, is not a huge uh, budget breaker. So, I mean, he probably could be a tradable asset if that's what Dave Dombrowski might be thinking in the offseason. Certainly uh, not now, but, you know, getting to the present right now, this current, uh, you know, because, you know, the playoffs are going to start uh, Friday, October 5th, like a month away now, uh, is when uh, game one of the uh, American League Division Series will be at Fenway Park. Uh, for the Red Sox. And my question to you is, as we're kind of trying to figure out what this postseason roster is going to look like, first of all, where do all three of these catchers uh, stand? Like, you know, do you bring all of them? Are they all part of the postseason roster? Uh, or who could be the odd man out here? What What are your thoughts on that? I think they're all part of the postseason roster because I think they'll, you know, it's hurts very versatile, obviously. He can play multiple positions. He's had some good you know, the bats and pitch hit situations, you know, obviously just over the last week, I mean, he's had, you know, in Chicago and against Miami at home. So, uh, you know, I mean, he's a versatile player. He can play multiple positions. He can catch late in games. And um, we've seen it where he's pinch hit, you know, in the seventh inning. And, you know, he's come in and caught the last three innings of the game. You could see that in the postseason. So I think he definitely makes the roster. And then I think Paul Vasquez and Leon do because I think they're going to have to have their own catch, uh, catch sale. And I think they're going to have Vasquez catch Eduardo Rodriguez's start because Eduardo Rodriguez is really comfortable with him. And there's this comfort level. And I, I don't necessarily get it 100%. I do get it a little bit, but... I mean, I guess you can't really fool around with it in the playoffs. So, uh, if, you know, maybe maybe you, you see what you get for the playoffs if you want to decide to, to you know, see, see if uh, Swire uh, can catch this guy or, or Leon can catch this guy or Vasquez can catch this guy, maybe you do it. But I really wouldn't probably fool around with it, even though I say Swihart should be the starting catcher in the playoffs. I do believe that, but I think that they'll – but probably they won't fool around with it, and they'll go with uh, you know, Leon catching Sale, Vasquez catching Eduardo Rodriguez, and, you know Price and Leon probably, and you know whoever yeah. else, and um, have Swihart catch for later innings, which is kind of funny because Swihart is, uh, <laughs> you know, if you think about it, I mean that shows you that he's a good defensive catcher, but catch the later innings. Yeah, uh, I mean. Like I said, I think you and I are, are both, you and I like Swihart about the same amount, I'm pretty sure, but where I think our opinions differ a little bit is I don't, I wouldn't make him the starting catcher for the playoffs, not when you haven't really made him your primary starting catcher the whole season, then all of a sudden you're going to change it up. I, I wouldn't do that this year, uh, but you know, an expanded role for him, I have no problem with that, letting go of Sandy Leone in the offseason, I have no problem with that. I do like Swihart as a bench man in the uh, postseason because of the versatility that you brought up. I love the fact he can pinch hit, he can catch in the later innings, just having that third catcher, he can do so many things. Now, you you know, Leone and Vasquez, we know neither one of them has really hit very well, 
well this year, so you can easily pinch hit for them, and you've got this other option. You know, you, you could bring, you could pinch hit if they both got into the game. You could pinch hit for each of them, and then you still have Swihart there as a as a third catcher. So I think that definitely helps. Let's try to run through the pitching staff here really quick, Chris, as we start kind of you know trying to hone in on things. Uh, my question: Let's start with the starting rotation. Concerns with um, with sale and price. I mean, I know the reports are Price is supposed to start this weekend against the Astros. Sale's going to start later in the homestand, probably against uh, Toronto in all likelihood. Uh, are you concerned with either of them coming back from uh, their respective injuries? No, because I think that, uh, you know, I think that we'll just, uh, even though, like, Sale has said, oh, this much more time, uh, he doesn't feel like it's, you know, the shoulder inflammation is going to be there this time because he's taking a lot more time this time around than he did last time. He didn't even really take that. I think he only took a day or two off from throwing the last time. This time he took like a week and then you know, three for five days where it was, you know, just, you know, for four of those days it was just kind of casual tossing and whatever. So, um, you know, he doesn't think it. But I, at this point, you know, he came back and, he, you know, he looked so sharp in that, that start in between DL stints. I mean, this is the time you got to get rolling. And so, if you know, they've been cautious with him. So even if he feels a little, you know, tight or some inflammation or whatever, I think you'd be able to pitch through it because this is the time of the year that is most important. So I don't think that there's going to be any... I, I, I you know, we saw him pitch great, <laughs> you know, in between the DL stints. So we know he can do it. Um, they're probably just being they're probably just being overly cautious with them because of the history and because they know they need them to win a postseason to win the World Series. Yeah, um, I, I'm sorry. Price, I mean, I he seems fine to me. I actually looked at his wrist the other day, and I didn't even see any swollenness or anything. It was you know just a couple three days after it or whatever. So he looks he's fine. I think he'll be fine. Um, He's a tough guy in general. I mean, I don't. He's been hit a couple times this year on liners back to the mound, and he's never one not to not to pitch or not to or to be affected by that kind of stuff. So I, I would be very surprised uh, if that that injury affects him at all. So I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be concerned with either one of them. Okay. Well, I mean, with Price, uh, you know, we, we all know about his unusual elbow. Apparently, he's got the unusual wrist to match. And as far as his toughness, you're right. I think from a physical standpoint, he seems to be able to, to take some of these hits. I think the only the only place he's extra sensitive is up upstairs in the head. But, uh, you know, any anything above the neck, he's sensitive. But below the neck, he's, uh, he's pretty tough, like you said. Yeah, and um, you know, I was, it's funny because I was asked, um, uh, I was asked actually on another show by about Price, well, why has he never done it in the postseason? You know, I'm always, I'm under the impression that you know David Price can have a dominant postseason. He can, you know, he can pitch well. He can make good starts in the postseason. And somebody asked me the other day, well, why hasn't he? Why hasn't he had a good start in the postseason? And I'm like, well, he has. And, you know, you look at his, you know, you look at some of his starts. I mean, he went nine innings in a, in a game 163 to beat, you know, Texas. And, you know, he's had two really good postseason starts. 
and but six of his eight postseason, I think it's a six of eight. No, I think it's seven to nine. Seven to nine postseason starts. He's actually gone, you know, into the seventh inning in six of in seven of nine postseason starts. So, um, what that makes me feel like is that they didn't pull him fast enough. You know, you go back to the ALCS um, when he was with Toronto against Kansas City. There was a game where he got hit for light. He, he had the first six innings. He was fine. No runs. The seventh inning, he got hit for, you know, five runs without an out in the seventh inning. And then that's a bad playoff start. There's been a lot of those type of things. And it all comes down to knowing when to pull your pitcher in the, um, you know, when, when to pull your pitcher in the postseason. You know, when is, when is enough? And I don't think his managers have figured that out. So I don't think that it's, totally to blame with with Price uh, in the postseason. And I don't think he's ha- he, I don't think he can, you know, that he, that he's not capable of having a good postseason. I think that Cole needs to understand if they get five good innings out of him, you know, one run, five innings, six, one run, six innings, you know, when to pull him. And, uh, you know, or have somebody ready up in the sixth inning and the bullpen behind him. And I think that he'll be fine. It's it's about pulling your status early anyway. And so um, I'm not I'm not as concerned about Price heading into this postseason. I think that he could he could he could do well if Cora managed him as well. Okay. Uh, again, this is uh, Chris uh, Chris Smith from uh, MassLive.com covers the uh, Red Sox on that site. And uh, Chris, uh, one of the things that's going to play into Alex Cora's decision making regarding whether it's David Price, Chris Sale, any of these starters, as far as when he's going to pull them and going to that bullpen, that's where the question marks lie right now. I mean, you've got Craig Kimbrell. He's a pretty good closer, one of the better ones in baseball. Although he certainly, you know, he's not. He hasn't been that dominant shutdown closer, one, two, three innings like he was last year. Uh, he makes things a little more interesting for for the fans watching the games. But but still, for the most part, the numbers are there. That's fine. The big question is going to be who's going to be that lockdown guy in the eighth inning or you know seventh and eighth innings. Those important outs where your starter, you know, you're going to pull your starter early. Who is core going to be able to turn to i mean my question to you chris is who do you think is going to emerge as you know maybe the best setup men uh you know bridging the gap from the starters to kimbrell when the playoffs start i think brazier is number number one right now i think he has you know the eighth inning although i think that core still likes barnes is his top you know setup man but barnes has not been good in second halves throughout his career so far including this year no. right Including this year, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, you got to look to see what he does in September before you trust him with an eighth inning in, in October. And um, I, I tweeted this out the other day. I, I feel like, well, there, there was a couple names in Pawtucket that I felt like they should have brought up. They did, but so I'm not even going to mention that because it's a mute point. But, um, but did you think that those were guys in Pawtucket who actually could have made an impact in October? Yeah. I mean, Bernie oh. Workman made an impact in October well, Workman, 2013. Okay, well, Workman's with the – he's in the bullpen now, so. Yeah, but, I mean, he has to get up a home run today, and he hasn't pitched that good in his velocity. He's not as good as 2013. Right. He hasn't, pitched, okay. he hasn't really pitched – I'm not – I you know, as I say, he gave up a home run today. That doesn't matter. But, you know, like, in general, he hasn't pitched as effectively. But what I'm saying is, is that 
so so but with this well the two I guess I'll bring it up uh, Travis Lakins and Mike Mike Schworn I mean I think that Travis Lakins they moved him to relieve him from starter and he's a talented kid out of Ohio State a fifth round pick and you know he has really good stuff out of the bullpen and they could they should have at least made an attempt to see what he could have given them in September and then you know seeing if he could help in October uh, there would have been plenty of opportunities to for him to pitch and to try to win a job and then the other one Mike Foreign he's a starting pitcher but the only time he's pitched out of the bullpen in his minor league career he's another one that's a high draft pick or um, actually, it was supposed to be a first-round draft pick, but flipped to the fifth round just because of you know concerns over injuries and his windup and all that. But and he's been fine. He's been awesome since he's been in the system, and you know had a really dominant year starting this year. And you know, Morkman was a starter in 2013, and the only his relief appearance that he had this year, he had you know three and two score. Three and two-thirds scoreless innings or something. Oh, okay, Chris, so bottom line is, though, you're more comfortable with some of those guys than you are with the guys who've been pitching for the Red Sox all season long out of the bullpen? Well, I would have liked to have seen, like, you know, you've got to experiment with some things in September to, 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 to see where your bullpen can be its best in October. So what I'm saying is, is if they had gotten the opportunity instead of guys like you know, and I'm not saying Quavis isn't good, but Quavis isn't going to make the, you know, he's not going to make the playoff roster. And, you know, Bobby Scott's not going to make the playoff roster. Bobby Pointer might. Um, so give give those roster spots to them. Let see what they can do. If they get in a huge group here in September, maybe one of them does make it, and you've got somebody reliable and you know, on a groove heading into the postseason. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. So we look at the uh, potential ALDS roster, the way it would shake down. Uh, you know, again, it's a best of five series. You have to figure that Cora probably would only want to have eleven pitchers, and then you know, fourteen position players, which gives you a little bit of a deeper bench uh, for that opening round best of five series. So if you look at the eleven pitchers, Sale, Price. Porcello, Erod, those are your four starters. I'm not even saying you necessarily would use four starters in that series, but you probably would. Then your bullpen, Kimbrell, Barnes, Brazier, Kelly for sure. Ivaldi looks like he's going to shift over there, although we haven't really seen him pitching out of the pen yet. Then then who would it be? Heath Hembry, Drew Pomerantz? I mean, there's no lefties in that pen if you don't include Pomerantz, unless I know you brought up Bobby Pointer. I mean, where, where do you see the... Pomerantz isn't going to get in. Pomerantz okay. stinks. Um, okay, I and I don't necessarily disagree with that. Today, more proof of he that. He doesn't uh, need a lefty. I really don't think he needs a lefty. He's, he said that throughout the year that he doesn't need a lefty. Okay. Oh, I left out Thornburg. Actually, that's the guy who I was. Yeah, forgetting. Thornburg's not going to get in there either at this point. If, if he was to have to decide a roster right now. So who are the seven then that you think? There, uh, the guy that would get in there, Stephen Wright. You really think Stephen Wright could get? But again, where would they use? Where would they really want to use Wright? He feels like more of sort of like a, a like a middle. You know, he f- almost feels like he'd be filling a role that Tim Wakefield filled in two thousand four when you know they were getting blown out against the Yankees in the ALCS. Oh, and they had to save some innings for the bullpen. With, I think they would be fine with uh, putting him in the sixth or the seventh inning and letting him have one of those innings and in, in bridging the gap. Okay. I, it doesn't have to be a blowout to have. Even right in there, they could they could give it to him with a two-run, one-run lead. Yeah, that's interesting. I think they feel that confident because if you look at it, 
he really is pitching those situations um, out of the bullpen this year. He even pitching them this weekend. I mean, he came in with a uh, you know three run lead the other day, two run lead, I think. But anyway, they were it was trending in that direction that before he got moved to the starting rotation. Mm-hmm. But they wanted him pitching in seventh and eighth inning high leverage situations um, because they like that different look, and they felt like they could trust every catcher they have on this. That they could, that they trust all three catchers to catch him, and that you know he he's somebody that doesn't throw as many you know pass ball wild pitches as you know Tim Tim Wakefield. And he has more control. And I, I've actually talked to Cora about that, and I've asked him why he feels that, like why that that is that that why that these guys were able to catch him, whereas you know only one guy was able, to, like Mirabelli was able to catch, you know Wakefield, and that was it. And maybe it has something to do with that he has a quicker, um, you know, that he has a quicker uh, knuckleball. I mean, it's ten. 10 miles more than, than Wakefield's was average-wise. I don't think he throws his knuckleball as much as Wakefield did either. He's not as yeah. reliant on it. He's got uh, other, you know, uh, off-speed yeah. pitches he can... He, he does. He has okay. a curveball and he has a, a fastball okay. that, he, that he's used to, that he's going to. So oh. I actually think that they... they This is what I would do. I would... I would when, when Sale comes back, I would immediately put um, Evaldi in seventh and eighth inning, high leverage situation, see what he can give you. Um, uh, you know, see what he can do with those those situations. And then I would I would put Stephen Wright in those same things and oh. see what he can do down the stretch. And if he and if he proves that he can, you know, pitch well in those one run, two run games late in the inning, which he's done before this year, um, you know, I wouldn't mind giving him I would if I was Corey, I'd rather give him the ball than, than some of these other relievers. Yeah, you may be right about that, Chris, because it, it, it seems pretty clear that uh, Cora has been frustrated at, at various points this season with some of those other guys in the bullpen. So with been, with 21 games very left, effective. I mean, right. I, I you know people keep saying to me, oh, you can't have a, you can't trust a knuckleballer in the postseason and stuff like that. It, it, I don't care. He's been the most one of the most effective pitchers this year when healthy. And you know, I would I would rely on Stephen Wright more than I would rely on Heath Embry, because nope. there was a funny quote that Evan Drellick got that um, one one exec said to him that American League teams are you know looking their chops, waiting to face the Red Sox bullpen in the postseason, and so that just shows me that you know that Hembry, Barnes. Everybody leading up that they've been using all year is not going to play, as I thought, this whole entire year is not going to play in the postseason. And, we, you know, we've seen it in, in, in big games that, that it hasn't played. And um, and so I would get Evaldi, I would get Wright, I would get those guys into the high-leverage situations immediately when Sale gets back and, and start getting rolling on that and see if it works. Yeah, well, I mean, everything you're describing sounds an awful lot like the uh, 2003 Red Sox, and uh, we all know how that uh, that season ended, where uh, Grady Little didn't trust anyone in the bullpen, and uh, it kind of blew up uh, blew up on them in the uh, uh, championship series against the Yankees. Uh, quick question here, uh, Chris, on uh, Devers. 
what where does he factor in in the postseason at this point? I know he's just coming back from the injury, but you know all the errors defensively. They seem to really love the way Nunez is playing over there right now. He's play, playing with a spark. So where where does Devers? Who's the starting third baseman come October? Uh, I I would think Eduardo Nunez is uh, starting third baseman just because he's been hitting a lot better and he doesn't make any you know he doesn't make you know he, he there's too many errors by Rafael Devers for postseason. <laughs> I mean, they'd have to replace him in the seventh inning, like, every game. So, unless he comes back this month, and, you know, I mean, obviously he's back, but unless he, you know, shows that, you know, he he's hitting well and he's playing good defense, and I think Eduardo Nunez is the starter. Would you include Devers on the postseason roster if you're not going to start him? Uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, if I, I'd have to break down the whole roster to see if there's room, but... Yeah, why not? He can hit a you know a home run in the you know a pinch hit home run. Right, but that limits him to just basically being a pinch hitter because you don't trust his defense, yeah. and he only plays one position defensively anyway. So there, there's that. Um, in hindsight, would it be easy to say at this point, with you know, you didn't see the Devers injuries coming, but you know they could have possibly included him in a package to get a Zach Britton or a Brad Hand who could have helped the bullpen. And you feel uh, like you feel like Dombrowski's kind of going all in on this team, especially given you know where this team is in in the standings and everything. I, I don't just I, again, I'm just asking if it's easy in hindsight to say that or no. No, like Jose Ramirez didn't have first couple good years. You know, you look at other guys. And- you know, we're young. Hey, even Bogart struggled his first full year in the major leagues. Um, I'll give you another example of a third baseman who struggled. He's in the Hall of Fame now. Wade Boggs. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't, uh, I would have never traded him for somebody that was just a, you know, rental. I mean, uh, hand wasn't a rental, really, but, you know, I, I wouldn't have done that, no. Okay. All right. Well, uh, as we wrap up here, uh, you know, again, looking here at the this incredible Red Sox season, all the Sox have to do is go nine and twelve over their last twenty-one games, and they will set a new franchise record for victories in a season. That would give them one hundred and six wins. Again, it's incredible that they they've only three previous times have even won hundred games in a season. Right now, they're standing at ninety-seven wins with twenty-one to play. Uh, so, uh, Chris, just your your final thoughts. How far the way this team is is constructed? Uh, you know, even with some of the shortcomings in the bullpen and whatnot, how far is this team capable of going? I mean, what do you, what do you think is going to happen, uh, you know, come uh, the postseason? I mean, if they can straighten the bullpen out over the next um, over the next in September here, they can win. They can win it all. I mean, it just depends on their pitching and starting pitching too. David Price, Chris Sale, we'll see what they give you in the postseason. As I said, these guys can have good postseasons just because they haven't had them in the past, but think the real the real big difference is is the bullpen and um you know we'll see i mean we'll see how it plays as i said i think they got to get guys out there um in defined roles immediately you know as quick as possible and you know get guys like evaldi and and right and stuff like that and in, into certain situations that are important late in games so that they can start defining roles and, and determine who are the most capable people of pitching out of the bullpen before the playoffs begin. Yeah, I, I can't 
argue with any of of those points, Chris. I mean, I you know I look at a team that's ninety seven and forty four through their first hundred and forty one games, and yet here we are uh, thinking you know in a month from now when the playoffs start at Fenway Park Friday Friday night August fifth, uh, you know we're all going to be crossing our fingers when it gets to the late innings, uh, you know, and it's not quite time for Craig Kimbrell and the starters have run out of gas, and you know we're just going to be crossing our fingers hoping whoever uh, the ex reliever who comes in can do the job. I mean, but I guess that's that's just part of the postseason. So. Uh, Anyway, uh, listen, Chris, I will let you go, but I want to thank you so much uh, for being a part of the Toddcast here, uh, talking some Red Sox and what's been a very enjoyable and a, and a historic season. Hopefully it will continue to, to wind up historically, and uh, hopefully we can touch base uh, again somewhere uh, down the line before it's over. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right, great. Uh, again, thank you. Again, you can follow uh, uh, Christopher Smith from MassLive.com. Uh, that's where you can read his work. He covers the Red Sox, and his uh, Twitter handle is at Smitty on MLB. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to follow us on social media by searching Timeout for Sports Talk on Facebook and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at TOSTBMC. We offer links to the latest TOST Toddcast as soon as they are available. You can also check out previous Timeout for Sports Talk TV shows on demand at BelmontMedia.org and our next live uh, television show. Uh, with Howie McClellan and myself, will be coming up Wednesday, September the 19th. And uh, you can uh, follow us on, again, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, one more time, want to thank uh, Chris Smith from MassLive.com, uh, talking all things Red Sox. Uh, it's been fun. It's, uh, let's hope these uh, final uh, few weeks uh, down the stretch here of the uh, regular season, as the Red Sox close in on uh, what's going to be the winningest regular season team in Red Sox history, let's hope they can uh, close it out with their uh, their fourth World Series of this century. So until next time, this is Todd Bloniars. Want to thank you once again for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.